Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is part one of episode 35 in the book of John entitled Jesus High Priestly Prayer, where we discuss John chapter 17, verses 1 through 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses today? What a glorious, incredible chapter John 17 is. Mm. What an amazing way to look at the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. Now, the language of high priestly doesn't show up in this chapter. It's really uh, taken from other places like the book of Hebrews, Mm. where Jesus is our great high priest. He always lives to intercede for us. And to have a sense of how Jesus prays is amazing. This is the longest prayer of Jesus we have and to be able to walk through it. And one of the most exciting things is to apply our knowledge of this, that if we ask anything according to the will of God, he hears us, First John says, and we have what we have asked. Well, we swing and miss on our prayers. We don't ask properly. We don't ask for the right things. We don't ask in the right way. None of that is true of Jesus. So what that means is everything in this chapter that he asks for, he's going to get. of it. Mm. And that's pretty exciting to go line by line. Even when he prays for unity, he's going to get that. He's going to get the disciples one. So today we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' prayer. We're not going to get through the whole thing. It's going to be a thrilling journey. Absolutely. Well, let's read John 17, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they, re- they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Andy, as we begin our look at this passage, what can we learn simply from the fact that Jesus prayed? Well, you know, earlier today as we are having our prayer time, we were talking about prayer and how all of us, I think, as Christians underestimate prayer. We mm-hmm. don't pray enough. We don't pray fervently enough. We, we don't really see prayer properly. And Jesus was absolutely our role model and pattern in prayer. And I think what we learn by simply the fact that Jesus prays is to be uh, like Jesus Uh, people of prayer and realize every good and perfect gift, everything we ever could want, everything that would be of value in our lives is in God's hands. Mm. And he wants us to ask him 
for all of them. We ask him for a small percentage of them. Uh, he gives many uh, to us without us ever asking. Mm-hmm. We understand that. But we should pray more and more. We should pray about everything. And so Jesus is our role model in a life saturated, rich in prayer. Mm. What is the hour that Jesus is referring to in verse one? And how would the Father glorify Jesus and vice versa? Well, the first question is incredibly deep mm. question. Uh, the hour, the time, the timing is a big theological theme. It has to do with with the linearity of history. Uh, Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. There's a sequence. And the sequence just has to do with a building of events of mm. human history. And so Jesus was born in the fullness of time, we're told. When the right time had come, he was born of a virgin. So that's Galatians. Jesus throughout his ministry in John's gospel especially says, my time has not yet come. He says this to uh, his mother when he begins his public ministry, that my time has not yet come. So there's this sense of timing to everything. And in Matthew 26, as he's beginning the preparations for the Passover, he says, go to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. And so he has a sense of timing of everything and, and it really does come down actually down to the minute, literally to the minute, because Jesus is going to be crucified on the Passover, right before the Sabbath comes, as the sun is setting, all right? He's going to die in fulfillment of all of these typical prophecies. One of them says not a single bone will be broken. If he had died a few minutes later, they would have, you know, he would have died because they shattered his legs. Mm but he was already dead by the time they came around. And that was very quick for crucifixion. And so everything was timed meticulously down uh, to, to, and I believe it's timed all the way out to the end of time. So there is a sense of a sequencing here and Jesus knew it. He's already uh, done at the beginning of this section in John's gospel in John 13, one, he says, uh, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go back to the Father. And he, you know, washed the disciples' feet, et cetera. And so uh, there's this sense of timing to everything. We should have that uh, in our lives too. All the days ordained for us were written in God's mm-hmm. book before one of them came to be. Nothing happens randomly. So there's a sequencing. This, then this, then this. So Jesus knew that the time had come. I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? So the second part is how, well, how would the Father glorify Jesus and vice versa? Okay. So now we get to this idea of glory and glorification, and that's very, very important. Uh, the definition that stuck with me, and I, and I think it's helpful, is that the glory of God is the radiant display of his attributes or perfections. Attributes would be adjectives like God's mercy, his power, his love, his patience, you know, his justice, his wrath, all of those things, the attributes. So I made a, a list from some systematic theo- uh, theologies of 26 or 27 mm-hmm. attributes of God. Um, so. When he says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, what he's saying is, put me on display so I can put you on display. Wow. That's what's going on. So Jesus in Hebrews 1 is the radiance of God's glory. When you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So what I believe is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the most efficient display of the attributes of God there's ever been in human history. When you know, If you know what to look for, as you see in your mind's eye, we see Jesus crucified in our mind's eye. You can see every attribute of God on display. Mm-hmm. You can see all of it. 
And, and we even have some verses that openly use display or demonstrate language. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So you can see the love of God displayed. Christ is the power of God. Christ crucifies the power of God in 1 Corinthians 1. He's also the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1. These things are an open display. He's the justice of God, the justice of God on display mm. at the cross. That's in Romans 3. God put his justice on display so that he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So you've got justice on display, you've got power, wisdom, and love. Those four right away, well, keep going. The others, we don't have verses that say, that link them to the cross, but they're all there. Yeah. You can see the patience of God on display, you can see the mercy definitely of God on display. You can see the wrath of God on display because of propitiation language, he is drinking the cup of God's wrath there on the cross. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. So. Jesus is on display up on the cross. If I am lifted up physically on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. People will see who I am by how I die and that I die. And in seeing who I am, Holy Father, they will see who you are. So that's what he's saying. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Wow. So what then is the connection between verse 1 and verse 2? And How does Jesus' authority over all people connect to the prayer for God to glorify him? <clears throat> Okay, so the greatest glory there ever has been or ever will be, and frankly, the cross itself is a subset of that, is the salvation of God's elect mm. through the work of Christ. That's how, that's the most glorious thing God has ever done. Um, creation is glorious. This is the pinnacle of creation, or really recreation, which is redemption of sinners through faith in the blood of Jesus. Mm. And so, therefore, salvation is part of that. You know, he's, he's going to, going to, save some, the elect. Uh, so we in Reformed theology believe that God has a saving intention um, toward the elect. He, he could save everyone, that would make us universalists. Mm. Um, but we believe that he has a saving intention. And so in verse two, he says, you granted him authority over all people. So he is the, he's the son of man, he's the king of kings, lord of lords, he's ruler of all human beings, in order that, to the end that, he might save the elect, those mm. whom you have given him. So that's what he's saying here. He says, you've granted him authority. So again, that's the Great Commission language. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus considers his authority derived. It's derived from God. Mm. And so you granted me authority over human beings, over the entire human race, to the end that I might save some of them. Wow. And that's what he's going to go do on the cross. So then in verse 3, we learn that eternal life consists of knowing God mm -hmm. and Jesus. What does it mean to know the only true God and yeah. Jesus Christ whom God has sent? And are both of those essential to eternal life? Wow, um, verse three, we go from, from one deep verse to the next to the next. So uh, John 17, three, one of the great important verses in the whole Bible. What is eternal life? What does it mean? Mm. And so the answer theologically is given to us directly by Jesus. Mm -hmm. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, first of all, the and Jesus Christ, again, points right to the Trinity. Um, to It's not two different things, but to know God and to know Jesus, that's what eternal life is. And so, here's, here's as I write this book on heaven, uh, and the basic premise of my book on heaven is that some of the glory of God that we will, um, that we will drink in in heaven will be a backward look at redemptive history. We'll be able to look back. But what are we looking for? As we look back over 6,000 years of history, what are we looking for? We're looking for the actions of God. We're mm. looking for the works of God. We're looking for the glory of God. And so, all right, let's try to understand then the essence of eternal life in heaven will be knowing God. I believe in a dynamic knowledge of God, 
so that we won't just get downloaded and now we know God as much as we ever ever will. Uh, no, we're going to keep learning God. We're going to know him and know him and know him. But now we have to expand the word know. The word know, there, there are two aspects of it at least, but we can say factual knowledge, a sense of knowing about God. Mm. And then beyond that is knowing him. And I think it's both. It's not either or. All right. We have to know about him in order to know him at a deeper level. So factual knowledge that God did this or that he did that or that he said this or that he said, let there be light and there was light. All that's vital. Without that, we can't know him. Think about your relationship with Annie, your wife, mine mm -hmm. with Christy. You know things about somebody before you love them. Mm -hmm. And so their, your knowledge about that person then feeds the relationship. And that's where we're really heading with the word no. The deeper form of no is an intimate covenant love relationship at the deepest level. Person A, person B, two persons in an intimate relationship with one another. And the, the ultimate picture of it is marital relations, what we call sex uh, between a husband and wife. It says in the book of, of Genesis, the Hebrew uh, word for no, yada, uh, we all know what that means when it says Adam knew Eve mm. and she gave birth to a son, Cain. Mm -hmm. um, it said of, of um, the Virgin Mary that she did not know a man. She said that to, um, to Gabriel, how shall this be? How will I get pregnant since I know not a man? Oh, she knew all kinds of men. She knew Joseph, her betrothed, mm. but she hadn't known him. So uh, also God says in the book of Amos uh, to the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. God knows about every nation on earth, but he only knew Israel. So what I take this as is the in, most deepest, intimate, covenant, connected love relationship there is. That's what eternal life is. So it is knowing about God and we'll learn about God forever, for all eternity. And we will be one with God or united with him in a love relationship forever. That's what eternal life is. Wow. I love that. What a great definition to carry with us as well. John 17, 3. This is <coughs> eternal life. So verse four begins with Jesus making the statement, I glorified you on earth. Mm -hmm. Still in this prayer here. Right. How did Jesus bring glory to the Father while on earth? And what does this teach us about how mm -hmm. we glorify God? Okay, so going back to the definition of glory, he put God on display. He put God's attributes on display more than any human being that has ever lived. Um, he radiantly displayed God. Remember how Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Mm. Jesus did that better than anyone. All right, so by his good deeds, by his works, he put God on display. What kind of God is he? He's a healer. Uh, he healed people. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is tender-hearted. So we don't see all of God's attributes in Jesus' works. We don't see his works of judgment. That wasn't what the first coming was about. It is mm -hmm. what the second coming will be about. Mm -hmm. But it won't be the, the first coming. The second coming, he's coming with armies, with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to slaughter his enemies. But in the first coming, he, he said that, uh, that he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. So we're going to see his saving works. And he said, I brought your saving nature I brought your mercy on display. I put it on display. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son worked out a schedule. Hmm. 
you'd be born of the Virgin Mary at a certain time in the fullness of time. You'd grow up to a certain age when you were about 30. They know exactly how old he'd be, but then I'm just going with the text says mm -hmm. when he, he was about 30 years old, he began his public ministry. And he did all of these things for, it seems, three years. And they were works of healing, works of feeding, works of teaching, all that. You know, Jesus said, I did the works you gave me to do. I mm. finished. And he did that every day. Every day he could put his head down on whatever pillow he had, even if it was a rock, you know, and just know that that day he did everything the Father wanted him to do. That's incredible. He said, I did bring you glory on earth and I completed the work you gave me to do. So with that in mind, how then can we think about our role in glorifying God? What does it mean for us to glorify God? Because we don't have the same role, obviously, as Jesus, but we are called to glorify him. How, how do we right. do that? So take John 17, 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And mm. say, Lord, make that happen for me as much as possible. That's we great. know the world, the flesh, and the devil will hinder that at every step of the way. But here's the thing. Ephesians 2, 2, says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So having come to faith in Christ, justified not by works, but by faith, all of our sins forgiven, we are now born again. Now what? Do good works. Mm. Not so that you can have a better relationship with God. You can't have a better relationship with God. You're adopted and loved and forgiven and, and perfectly seen in Jesus. That's not it. You are You will have that for all eternity. Well, what then? Do the good works to bring God glory. We go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So yeah. put God on display. Mm. Be like Jesus. Serve the poor and needy. Evangelize. Teach the word. You know, love love your wife or wives love your husbands. Raise your kids. You know, do these good works and put God on display. Mm. Can't that's do great. any better than that. No, that's good. Imagine, let me say one thing. Imagine being able on any one given day, as you're just falling asleep, you put your head on the pillow and you're about to say, Lord, today I think that I can say I brought you glory on earth by finishing just today's works today. That would be a perfect day. Mm. I don't know that we could ever do that, but that's the goal. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> more, in the morning, more like, and more I of... I get to bed tonight, right, right. I want to be able to say I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that's you gave good. me to do today. So this glory language shows up throughout Scripture, um, not just in the New Testament, not just here in Jesus' prayer. Um, in fact, it shows up in Isaiah 42 and 48. What do those passages teach us about God's glory? And based on that, what does Jesus' request in verse 5 teach us about him? Right, yeah. Here's the thing. I, I had the privilege of writing a commentary on Isaiah for five years. And Isaiah 40 to 49, those 10 chapters, is fierce monotheism. Mm. It is God-jealous over syncretistic, idolatrous Israel. He's outraged by them. And they're going after Baal and Molech and Ashtaroth and all these other gods, along with Yahweh, mixing him in there with the rest. And God is saying, no, I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there's none like me. I, I created, I and not some other God. I alone told you the future. I'm the only one that redeemed you. There was no God with me. I'm alone and there is no other. It's, it's just absolute monotheism. It is God and no one else. Mm. And one of the statements he makes is he, he says, I will not share my glory with another. What glory? Well, there's some glory he will share with us. He shares with holy angels. They have a radiant shining light about them. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. But there's a unique glory that he will not share. And that is the glory of being God. The glory of being the self-existent, non-created creator of all things. That's a unique, special glory that merits him worship. 
Whereas all other created beings that do well will get honor. So we'll honor the heroes and heroines, but we'll worship God. There's a unique, infinite glory that goes to God alone. Now, what is Jesus asking for in verse 5? Give me that glory back. Make it evident. Make it shine and obvious that I am God. Because it's not obvious now. He's God in disguise, God incognito. Yeah, there's the transfiguration. He shines and his clothes become, become white. But he's saying, give me the obvious display of myself as God. Hmm. He's asking to be honored as God, just like the Father, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That's what he's asking for. What a bold prayer, but it's completely appropriate. Hmm. He being in very nature God laid that outward display of glory down so that people looked on him as an ordinary man. He said, all right, now that's done. Give me my glory back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Incredible. This has been part one of episode 35 in the book of John. We invite you to join us next time for part two of episode 35, where we continue our discussion in John chapter 17. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.